I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. I could ask you to imagine a warm morning in late June, perhaps, a light breeze, shafts of sunshine piercing through the mighty green conifers around our garden. They are a plant that I have memories of my mother growing and cutting and filling the kitchen table with. For me, one of the most fascinating things that the tulip tells us is how important beauty has always been to man. But they gain for me a real different aspect when you start to understand that the plants themselves are you know, in communication with each other, are changing their behaviours based on their relationship to the other plants around them. We're just a few hours away from Earth Day, a day that's been dedicated to the environmental movement since 1970. It's a time to zero in and reflect on the ways in which we can protect and look after our planet. At the RHS, we try to do this every day, thinking critically about the ways we cultivate the earth and interact with wildlife that inhabit our green spaces. But this week, we wanted to take extra time to really celebrate our gardens, to share our love for the many plants and animals that bring them to life. So in today's show, we're delving into history, ecology, and the ways we can garden with a caring, gentle touch, all while bringing our deep affection for our local flora and fauna to the forefront. Gardener and writer Ben Dark will share a history of the tulip that goes beyond Dutch tulip mania. I'll chat with RHS senior ecologist Gemma Golding on the exciting wildlife research happening across our gardens. Before author and artist James Bridal takes us through his exploration of the intelligence of plants. And finally, Sprinkled throughout the show, we're sharing plant love letters from some of our former guests. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. I always think it's difficult when people ask what my favourite plant is, but sweet peas is always the first answer. They are a plant that I have memories of my mother growing and cutting and filling the kitchen table with. She grows them because my grandfather grew them and he grew them for my grandmother. And I never really knew my grandmother, but I feel like when I grow them, I'm carrying on this heritage of these potent, pretty, often quite short-lived, but <laughs> completely engaging plants. People have huge love affairs with sweet peas. 
Personally, I like to sow mine in September. They are incredibly hardy. People don't realize how hardy they are, but they will survive frost. I sow them undercover in root trainers and I pop them in a cold frame. And from that point in September, October, you can almost sense the moment in the spring when you will have sturdy, fierce little seedlings. And by the time we get to May, June, it's time to cut them. And the beautiful thing about sweet peas is that the more you cut them, the more they grow. So you can really keep that incredible scent and beauty and prolific flowering going for a few weeks. So yeah, that's why I love sweet peas. That was Alice Vincent, author of Why Women Grow, with the first love letter of the day. One of the reasons Alice grows sweet peas has to do with heritage, with her family history. She's continuing the legacy of her mother and grandfather by sowing the seeds each September. It's an act of connection across time. Of course, the history of sweet peas stretches much further back. We have records of a monk, Franciscus Cupani, from Sicily, coming across the wildflower in the late 17th century. He sent seeds of the wild sweet pea to plantsmen throughout Europe, hoping to set off the plant spread. By the 1900s, breeders were developing new colours of the scented flower for commercial use. Chief among them was Henry Eckford. He won a first-class certificate from the RHS for his Bronze Prince cultivar back in 1882, and later was dubbed the Father of the Sweet Pea. The sweet pea isn't alone in its rich history. Every plant we've cultivated and cherished has one of its own, both an ecological backstory and narrative of human connection and intervention. One of the longest and perhaps most well-known of these histories is that of the tulip. We've all heard about the Dutch tulip mania of the 17th century. But today we want to take a slightly different look at this history exploring the myriad of ways this spring jewel has been grown in gardens across almost 1,000 years. So here's writer and gardener Ben Dark to take it away. He's starting from the present day. So my advice for how to plant a tulip is rather long-winded, and to many people might sound like how to disguise a tulip. That's because the simple act of planting a tulip is very easy. You go down in November with a trowel and you plonk it three bulb lengths deep into the soil. And there you have a tulip. It rises up and it does its flowering the next spring. But I don't think that's enough. I think the tulip is a fantastically beautiful plant, but I am not a fan of it grown on its own, stark and spare. I don't think there's enough leaf on the lower stem. I think it needs help, it needs lushness, it needs a carpet to rise from, it needs the fading leaves of the snowdrops before, it needs frills of aconite foliage, it needs anemone foliage, it needs little bits of spiky leucogium leaves and daffodil leaves and some rough grass coming around it just to disguise that bare bit where stem and leaf meet the soil. So my advice for tulips is to put them somewhere shaggy, somewhere where there is other foliage about that can collect the dewdrops and really set them off. Tulips have a remarkably long history of cultivation 
and it stretches back longer than we know. If we look at Turkey, which is a prime tulip growing country, it's almost the national flower. The 18 species of tulips that grow there, I think there's 11 natural tulips. The rest of them were bought in by movements of people over a thousand years ago when they say the Seljuks were moving into the area from Central Asia. And I think that's wonderful. That shows that these purely ornamental plants were being carted around by people because they're beautiful for as long as we know. And they've been grown differently by different people who've encountered them. In their history in the Middle and Near East, they have been grown almost as, as jewels, as things to be admired in the quite formal, quite rectilinear gardens of, say, the sultans. So there would be magnificent ranks of tulips to be wandered along and to be admired. They came to Europe from those courts, from the houses of the grand vizars and kings, because it was the diplomats who brought them back. People who were visiting brought them over to Amsterdam initially, where they were fantastic novelties and grown as such. So you would not suffer a snowdrop to grow nearby. No aconite foliage near them, thank you, because these were things to be looked down upon from above, to be placed in maybe a little box hedge when you think of your Dutch garden with its its parterres and its little compartments. Maybe one tulip on a nice piece of gravel that you could admire. And that is the tulip of this famous tulip mania, the, the speculative acid bubble, essentially, that formed in 1630s around tulips and became known as tulip mania. That is how they were to be grown, as, as things to be admired. They think that the whole thing was sparked off by a Dutch East India man who had one growing in his garden, a Semper Augustus, and refused all offers to buy it, which drove crazy speculation in the thing. The tulip mania story, I think, has recently been slightly debunked. It wasn't as bad as we were taught in the 19th century when it was a whole nation ruined by their lust for tulips, which just seems to be a little bit of anti-Dutch propaganda. What it was, was an incredibly wealthy country with excess cash splashing around and people willing to speculate. There's almost parallels to the US and the crypto craze with just people with cash throwing it at things. Um, but the tulip survived tulip mania and was grown for a long time as a novelty plant. When it started to come down in price and was available to the middle classes, for example, in Britain, it became a great favourite of breeders and collectors, people who wanted to fiddle around with the petals and the formation and the flower spikes. And if you talk to a, a real tulip expert now, they'll tell you about the divisions. Tulips are divided into divisions. I think there's, there's 13 or 14 of them. And that's when all of those developed, when we started to get the fine shape of the parrot tulip with its alligator teeth or the little cinched waist of the lily-flowered tulip. After that, the tulip came to be a mainstay of bedding displays which ruined its reputation for a long time, like all plants that got really taken up by the Victorian bedding craze. Later gardeners saw them 
as a little bit public park. They were seen as stiff, formal little things, all growing next to each other, all one colour, all the same height, and took quite a lot of rehabilitation, quite a lot of being grown in different places, in pasture, in orchard, in pots, before they reached the status that they have now, which is a plant for every situation and every garden. For me, one of the most fascinating things that the tulip tells us is how important beauty has always been to man. Some crops, particularly, get a lot of attention in terms of their domestication, the change of grass to grain, the change of little, little apple-like things to orchards. But the tulip shows us that plants have been appreciated for their pure beauty for a very long time, and that that is something as important as sustenance to humans. And that is something that we gardeners know. We, we feel it when we see the things we've grown, when we see the things that other people have grown. It is a part of us in the same way that, that eating is. And for me, tulip is a, a wonderful reminder of that. Thanks there to Ben Dark. Ben wrote about tulips in the chapter of The Grove, A Nature Odyssey in Nineteen and a Half Front Gardens. You can read more about its history as well as that of a plethora of other popular garden plants in the book, which just came out in paperback. And now to keep the celebration of our garden plants going, here's another love letter. My love letter to a plant is to the mountain cornflower representing positive hope for the future and fullness of life's cycles. This plant grew in my mother's garden and she planted it into mine and I've carried a tiny bit of it through to my new garden where I hope it will thrive. It's got a, a centre which kind of looks a bit prickly then it's got these delicate dark blue and purple flower bits coming off, petals, and it has a, a kind of fairy leaf to it. It's sweet scent that comes in the early spring and carries through to summer reminds me of childhood and of the wonder and the magic that was held there and of my mother who is no longer here. It's also a frequent garden escapee so we find it in the wild but it's usually because it's broken past its boundaries and headed out there to find new adventures. So to my wonderful, adventurous mountain cornflower. I love you. That was Victoria Bennett, author of All My Wild Mothers. As it happens, my mother was a keen grower of the mountain cornflower as well. All through her life, she had plants of mountain cornflower growing in her beds and borders, and it's an easy plant to grow and one that's easy to propagate and cheap to buy. It's got single flowers, that means they're not double, they've only got one set of petals, and they are relished by pollinators. It's the arch-typical cottage garden plant. Speaking of pollinators, of course, in our Earth Day episode, we couldn't exclude the various animals that call our gardens home. So next up, we're taking a break from flora to spotlight our local fauna. 
I went to Wisley on a brutally windy day this past month to chat with our new senior ecologist, Gemma Golding, on the work she's doing to monitor the wildlife across RHS gardens. So Gemma, I understand you're the first RHS ecologist. Yeah, so I think I'm the first official RHS ecologist, but there's a lot of people who've been kind of working behind the scenes and make it part of their day-to-day -day role, putting biodiversity at the kind of front of what they do. So what my role specifically is, I've come to work towards the sustainability strategies target to become biodiversity positive by 2025. And so my main kind of focus is organising surveys across the garden for a variety of different species. And you say biodiversity positive. What does that mean for people who are unfamiliar with the term? Biodiversity positive is kind of looking at reversing the declines in a number of species across the UK, but also in terms of the RHS, trying to record kind of more data and to put a lot more emphasis on what we do in support of wildlife. That's really interesting. One of the changing things about the Royal Horticultural Society is that we no longer talk about ornamental horticulture, we talk about environmental horticulture. And that's one of the reasons why people like Gemma are here to help the RHS develop this strategy. We always think of ecologists as people standing on hillsides, throwing quadrants and counting plants and insects. Is that what your job entails? I mean, it kind of is. For the RHS, we're doing exactly that. We're getting out on the sites across the five different gardens and we're collecting data. The main surveys we're starting with are bat surveys, bird surveys and invertebrate surveys. And for both bats and birds, you'll see us walking around the gardens. With bats, we'll have detectors and we'll be trying to collect recordings and work out what species are on site that way. And for birds, we'll be listening to bird calls and watching for birds, showing nesting behaviour, particularly at this time of year, and seeing the importance that our gardens provide. We also have butterfly transects being done and bee walks as well. And we're constantly looking at different things we can record and ways to take part in national monitoring schemes as well. I know people will be itching to know, but what have you found so far that people might be surprised at here at Wisley? So we've got over, I think we've had over 40 species of bird. We've had at least nine species of bat. So we also are encouraging the use of iNaturalist across the site, and we've had some very interesting sightings on there. We've got newts on site, and yeah, we've got badgers on site. We've got all sorts. And the question that everyone would want to know is has the Dartford warbler turned up in Wisley Gardens yet? <laughs> That's something which I would love but from my knowledge I haven't seen anything so yeah we'll, we'll carry on our surveys and we'll keep a lookout. Now what have you seen that's one of your favourite sightings? So I think one of my first bird surveys I went on we had kingfisher darting a kind of along the river. We've had reed buntings which was quite exciting over the winter months and whenever you're walking around Wisley you, you hear bird life, you, you can see where the badgers have been digging, there's obvious activity throughout the site and that's really exciting. Hmm. So why is a survey so important and what's the ultimate goal of your research? So I mean everyone's aware of the big phrase climate change and how the kind of environment is changing around us and that's something really interesting to follow and to track what's happening to our species and see what's moving and what's still around, what's changes over time. 
but also what our gardening practices might change. So how we're managing different areas and whether specific management changes are making a difference. Have you any examples of gardening practices that have been changed for the benefit of wildlife? I guess the big one to mention at the moment at Wisley is the change in how the orchard is going to be and how it's managed, but also the variation in species, the change from kind of having lines and lines of trees to actually varied structures and also the way the grass is managed around that. And that's one of the areas where our baseline surveys have been done and they all kind of run through that area and we'll be able to track any changes over time. As people who've come to Wisley over the years will know, the Wisley Orchard is a collection of trees all closely spaced in neat lines and suitably labelled. So, for example, there's 700 apple trees, or there were, because the orchard is coming to the end of its life and opportunity has been taken to redevelop it. Well, now that Earth Day is imminent, I wondered if you could share why you're so obviously keen on wildlife and how you find your work meaningful and rewarding. Yeah, I think it's really important to be able to track change over time and work out how we can protect species which are in decline, but also protect the environment around us. There's so much research that shows that, you know, birdsong is positive for well-being, gardening, going for walks, and that's why it's important. It's, it's protecting those habitats, protecting what we have around us, and making sure that these areas persist and it's also looking at the importance of gardens as well and how they extend some of our more native habitats. You know what, there's an animal for everyone and there's so much you can do to get involved in nature and think about the environment. You can record data on iNaturalist, literally if you're just walking through a park and you see something and you don't know what it is, take a photo, upload it and yeah, just nurture that interest in wildlife and the biodiversity around you. Well, thank you very much, Gemma, for sharing your knowledge and enthusiasm and insight. We shall look forward to the development of your data and conclusions in future years. Thank you. It's been really good to speak to you. We're back in the studio. If you'd like to track and record the wildlife you see out and about, you can download the iNaturalist app using a link in our show notes. Let wildness into your garden. Work with nature rather than against it. If you're a regular listener of the show, you've probably heard these phrases. We've said them, our guests have said them, they seem to come up whenever we discuss wildlife gardens. But even though we've had many guests repeat these lines, there's one person in particular that pops into mind whenever I think about gardening with a wild touch. And that's Sue Mabberley of Nanty Best Garden in Wales. And she's back on the show today with a rather shocking love letter. If I could ask you to imagine a warm morning in late June, perhaps, a light breeze, shafts of sunshine piercing through the mighty green conifers around our garden, and the gentle swaying of a glorious drift of white umbellifers lining the path either side of the road bridge. This drift of gorgeous white flowers is buzzing and humming with hundreds of pollinators. The scent is reminiscent of honey carrying on the light breeze. What a joy to behold. If you look more closely, each stem of this glorious plant is a collection of lovely white small umbels, so like myriad of stars, very dainty and airy. Visitors ask, what is this lovely white umbellifer you have growing everywhere? And they're astonished when I tell them 
Don't you know it? It's Grand Elder. Shock horror. So over the 40 years that I've been here, I've taken a different view on how I manage ground elder in my garden. I tried to dig it out for over 30 years before I realised that actually I was wasting my time and energy trying to eradicate it. So what my love letter is hoping to encourage gardeners to do is to develop a different relationship with some of the plants they have in their garden that they regard as the enemy that they have to battle against. Perhaps, looking forward, we can try to embrace some of these so-called weeds and look for their positive qualities like I've done with my ground elder. I wouldn't suggest you introduce it to your garden if you don't have it, but if you do have it, perhaps you could think again about getting out your can of poison or your digging fork. I think over the years I've been trying to dig out the ground elder and those who have it will know it's got very effective and efficient spaghetti-like roots. You leave the tiniest bit of root and it will grow. But in the border, the really difficult thing, the roots had got entangled with established plants within the border, so it's absolutely impossible to get out. And obviously people take out all the plants, they, you know, kind of wash the roots and then plant it all back in. But on this particular border, one edge of it is a retaining dry stone wall. And of course, once you get roots like that in the dry stone wall, you have to dismantle the wall. So the job gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So gradually I decided that I noticed that actually it was starting to flower in places and I'd never seen the flower before and, and realised that the flower was actually very pretty. And then I was beginning to realise that some of the plants I had in that border didn't actually mind sharing a bed with ground elder. So things like daylilies, hardy geraniums, there's an everlasting sweet pea. I plant in regularly spring flowering bulbs like Purple Sensation Allium goes very well in that border too. So I gradually realised that actually even though it was embarrassing to have a border full of a pernicious weed, that actually the flower is very pretty. That was a breakthrough moment. Sue knows that her ground elder is not going away anytime soon. But instead of waging a pointless and strenuous war against it, she's accepted the weed, learned to love it even. And over the years, she discovered which plants are good companions for it. Artist and writer James Bridle has also been on the journey to accept the way plants grow and interact naturally in his garden. He's been on a mission to investigate the various forms of non-human intelligence, things like animal intelligence, technological intelligence and plant intelligence. And he's written about what he's found in his new book, Ways of Being. And so for our final story of the day, he's here with us to discuss how we might look at the plants in our gardens a bit differently. Plants have always been looked down on, essentially, by biology and by philosophy as being kind of lesser beings somewhere lower down. But they have all these extraordinary abilities. One of my favorite experiments from the last few years was some researchers that used very sensitive microphones to record the sound of caterpillars munching on the leaves of a cress plant. And then they took the caterpillars away and they played the sound alone to the plants. And immediately the plants flooded their leaves with chemical defenses as though they were being attacked by the actual insects. Another experiment from a few years ago took a mimosa plants 
Mimosas are really wonderful little plants because they're one of the few plants that move in human time. That when you touch them, they curl up their leaves instantly. And that's why they're also known as touch-me-not plants and also why they make really good partners in experiments. So some researchers took the mimosa plants and they put them in pots and they put them on a little rail so that they could drop them quite suddenly, just 10 centimetres or so, down onto a little pad. And when they dropped them like this, the leaves of the plants immediately curled up and so that they were responding to the shock. But the researchers found that if they dropped them a few more times, five, six, seven times, the plant leaves stopped curling up. They put them to one side, they let them uncurl, they did some other things to them, like they sort of poked them or blew wind at them, they curled their leaves up again. But they dropped them, they didn't curl up. And they tested them again, weeks, even months later, and found that they displayed the same behaviour. These plants had learned that this drop was not dangerous to them, and so they changed the way in which they behaved. And they also remembered this months later. Plants hear, they understand things that have happened to them, they remember them. And in fact, they do a whole bunch of other stuff, like having proprioception. They're capable of being aware of the actions of things around them. If you see one plant growing in one direction, plants nearby it will grow in another direction. They do all of these things that in animals we would call intelligent behaviours. And they're so radically different from the way in which we understand thinking and intelligence that it's almost impossible to think our way into being that. But possess intelligence, they unquestionably do. There's a whole amazing class of plants called hyperaccumulators, and it's a class of plants. It's not one particular species or type, but plants in all kinds of different species that have evolved this particular ability, which is to grow in soils which are rich in particularly metals, particularly toxic materials. These plants were first studied heavily in the 1980s and 1990s by mining companies who discovered that certain plants could not only live in very like metal rich soils. But what they did was they drew those particular chemicals, usually metals, up through their roots and stored them in their leaves and stems. And so by doing so, they actually cleaned the earth that they were planted in. The toxic metals accumulated, that's why they're called hyperaccumulators, in their stems and in their leaves. And the soil itself was cleaned and made healthier that allowed other plants to grow there. And these plants take different forms all over the world and have been studied, you know, in various places. Some of them are kind of little shrub-like bush plants. Other ones are kind of great big vines. There's vines that grow in the jungle in Malaysia and Indonesia that are capable of drawing up so much nickel from the soil that when they're cut, the sap that comes out of them is actually kind of bright green. It's got so much nickel in it. And there's trees that grow in certain areas of the United States that are composed of something like 20 to 30% pure metal because of the amount of it that they're pulling out of the soil. And for me, these plants embody a, their own kind of knowledge because they've developed this ability, this hyperaccumulation of nickel in response to the particular place in which they found. And that's what I mean when I talk about the knowledge that's kind of embedded in, in plants and, and other non-human beings that we really have something to learn from if we pay attention to them and don't just impose our own ideas of what knowledge, intelligence and usefulness is. What I've learned from, from our own gardening is a, a new quality of attention, of just the joy of being around the things that are growing in my garden, 
and starting to pay attention to how they interact with one another. So thinking a lot more about companion planting and about aspects of permaculture that emphasize the ways in which plants depend on one another. So moving away from kind of strict row-based gardening or like monocultures of little plants in little areas and thinking about a whole systems interacts. I grow a number of plants under the olive trees here in the garden in Greece, very specifically because, you know, the the ecological conditions here are changing. They're changing faster than they are in the UK. We're getting already hotter summers, drier weather. So by growing the vegetables underneath the olive trees, they're protected from the sun. And also you create these much healthier soils. And these are kind of knowledges that have been built up through organic gardening and permaculture for a very long time. But they gain for me a real different aspect when you start to understand that the plants themselves are you know, in communication with each other, are changing their behaviors based on their relationship to the other plants around them. And that by paying attention to them and really listening to what they want, you can have a totally different experience and a lot more, for me at least, success in the garden. Thanks there, James. If you'd like to know more about the intelligence of plants, you can find a link to Ways of Being in our show notes. Well, that's about it for today. Unbelievably, we're past the middle of April, the days are getting longer and warmer, and finally, after the very wet conditions in March, the ground is drying out, so it's on with the planting, the sowing and the weeding. It's still time for parsnips and leeks, and it's also time to start looking after the lawn as well. Some areas, I expect people are not going to mow and leave to the wildflowers this year, but other areas, including the paths through the wildflower areas, can be mown and kept beautifully traversable so you can enjoy the rich treasure of flowers to come. That's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, I hope you have a wonderful nature-filled Earth Day. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. 
terms and conditions apply.